All right, show off. Let me see if I can do better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes, thank you. All right. All right. Three, two, and one, baby. Daddy-o. Everybody, welcome to Ride Dogs Invisible Spectacle, the number one, the single greatest, the highest quality content that you'll find on the internet. I'm so glad to have you here, everybody that's in the live studio audience and everybody that's listening at home. If you want, please check us out at RIS is number one on Twitter and on Instagram. If you if you have not already, <laughs> uh, be sure to follow the YouTube page called Rye Dogs Channel. Okay? And it's still currently in development. There will be videos coming soon. I know that I keep saying that, but there will, will eventually be videos. So, yeah, we have a lot to do and a lot to discuss, and it's so fun to have you all here. Um, WandaVision, we're going to do We're going to go into that. Um, going to get into some spoilers as well. I always forget to put the spoiler warning uh, ahead of time and ahead of what I of when I actually discuss it. MCU news, because there have been some recent developments developments over this past month. And then I'm going to be discussing the show, the plans for the show after this uh, episode, and as well as uh, my personal sentiment on the climate crisis. We're going to end on a somber note for this episode because I think it's important. And I was thinking a lot about it throughout the week, and I just thought, you know what, we all we should face more reality more often and get mixed up with my words sometimes but you know how it be anyways yeah um so let me get into my personal plans for the show right now um i have a whole google doc that i want to share with you all um a list of bullet points that i want to go over um number one the first bullet point episodes will be shorter it's not easy to say, but there will definitely be less guests, uh, at least less new guests. Um, it, it hasn't been happening as frequently uh, as I had originally planned for the podcast and the shows, but um, it's just the way it's it's just the reality of, of what situation the podcast slash show is in right now. Uh, it's quarantine and then also a mix of just being extremely busy. Um, so I think there there will definitely be more solos in the future, as well as more collaborations with uh, recurring guests such as Deanna and uh, possibly even Jake if he's up for the challenge. Yeah, <laughs> I mentioned the merchandise in episode two, but that isn't coming anytime soon. I <laughs> I don't think anybody is expecting it right now. They're not like, oh my god, I can't wait for this new RIS merch to drop. It's going to be so awesome, guys. No. I, I don't know. Nobody ever <laughs> mentioned it to me after I brought it up in episode two. But I think it will come eventually. Like, I'm hoping. I think my the plan in my head 
is to have it sometime later this year and maybe get uh, a, a couple boxes of t-shirts and sell them online. Now, the other thing I want to go into is the fact that this the show covers so many things and I other people that listen to it haven't brought it up to me as a problem or as a, as a complaint or a suggestion uh, as to you know and any changes that they have in mind but i i think it's fine for right now the the way we're formatting it but at the same time there's this thing at the back of my head that's saying like what the hell these are two totally polar opposite subjects that you're tapping into so why have them both on on, on a single podcast why can't you make them into separate podcasts or at least separate segments or separate episodes and I guess the response that I have for it is well huh I think I just answered my own question but the response that I have that I've been having in my head is this is just a news channel I mean it's like CNN right dogs invisible spectacle is just as big in my head (laughs) as CNN oh my god that's so dumb and and a little narcissistic if, if I'm being honest with you but yeah CNN does like media coverage they do celebrity news as well as politics and i feel like i could do the same thing why not this is also a show it's just invisible it's just people can't see it okay we have the ring of gaijis we're using it right now we're borrowing it uh if you don't know what that is it's like uh it's it's uh, a tale that plato tells in in uh the book of republic i think i don't know what the book is called I read it a long time ago. Okay, give me a break. So with that said, everybody, I'm going to add more types of segments onto the show. Okay, you not only are you getting more stuff, conversations on politics, not only are you going to get conversations on shows, but you're also going to hear stuff on books. Okay, books, you can hear, you can rely on us. You can come here and hear book club discussions that I'm going to be having with people sometime in June or maybe even sooner. I'm currently working on Dune. I think my dad and I are going to be doing an episode together. And he's been a longtime fan of Frank Herbert, the author of the book, and he's read the entire series. So um, I'm going to be inviting more people to read it and then come on with us. And so we can have a good talk and so you can all hear it and and see whether those novels of fiction are even worth reading or worth investing into. I mean, there's uh, you don't have to go on Audible and spend freaking 12 hours. You can spend 50 minutes with us. And it's so cool because it's going to be fun and it's going to be casual. And then the other thing that we're going to be doing is having more hard, real discussions that I previously demonstrated in the Valentine's Day episode. So that will be common, much more common than it is now. And it'll be more fun and you you get to, we're going to do all kinds of things. And this is, we're not, this is not a limiting type of program, but I will say that we are going to be doing those things in a way that's organized in a way that isn't so off-brand. I mean, this is a show. It's an invisible show. We get to do whatever we want here, am I right? R.I.S. is my favorite! Whoa, okay. No need to get crazy there, audience member. It's okay. Have have a seat, relax. Uh, Somebody give him a churro.
Anyways, so glad to have announced that. So glad to get all of that off of my chest and share it with all of you. Those are the plans. The episodes will be shorter. But for the long term, it's only getting bigger and better. So without further ado, everybody, let's get into the rest of the show. All right, everybody. So for this portion, I'm going to get into some recent developments from Marvel Studios Reddit theories from reddit and uh yeah cover wandavision from a screenwriting perspective and then give some thoughts on the upcoming episodes let's do it grow up you fucking virgin uh sir you are disrespecting the entire marvel studios fan base and i happen to have lost my virginity at 13 years old okay anyways moving on everybody let's get into some topics shall we um, first one that I wanted to talk about with you all was uh, Tom Holland leaving Marvel Studios after this uh, upcoming movie that's coming out later this year, No Way Home. So, according to Cinema Blend, uh, Tom Holland stated, I'm going to take a break and travel the world. It's the first time since I signed on to Spider-Man Homecoming, or Marvel Studios in parentheses, that I don't have a contract with someone. I might go skiing because that's something I've always really wanted to do. I've never really been allowed to do because it's obviously a dangerous sport. I've been very careful over the years, which is why I've become obsessed with golf because it's the only sport I can play without getting injured. This dude literally can't play football or basketball. Yeah, Chris Evans, I think uh, back in 2017, right before Infinity War came out, went on to Ellen and said that, he wasn't even allowed to do skydiving which is something that he was really passionate about but he did it anyways and i don't know um it's kind of weird because this guy tom holland has just been locked up especially now during quarantine you know you develop all that angst and you have to get something out of your system and the only thing that you're allowed to do is like either golf and wear a mask and play video games while you're at home or spend time with your brother and then you have to go straight to the set it's like i want to see the world like quarantine is about to end baby i want to do something with my life like i i don't want to be spider-man is short term and i don't know i'd rather go on to new exciting projects but he also added that he'd love to come back and work with marvel studios and this uh other film studio that uh recently re- released this new film called cherry that he's in but yeah um th- that's just my own personal thought on it i love the showmanship of the mcu by the way i know that's like a, a completely separate topic but i like that I, I i think i mentioned this in, in ris4 with deanna i love the the showmanship especially from kevin feige and in introducing every single movie and every single tv show that's coming out and and having that it's just the undertone in his voice of excitement and thrill and it's everything that's coming everything that's coming to marvel studios and everything that's been done in marvel studios has just been fantastic i mean people always debate over the cgi and and the abundance of it and the lack of practical effects but the masses are getting what they what they want and i am the masses i am in the masses and i love we're doing movies like this and i love that like there's a guy that's connecting all of the dots for us 
And that's that's awesome because he's just as much of a fan as we are. And I think that's so great about Kevin Feige. And I like – this is something that I'll get into later too. But I like that he's working really hard on bringing all of the characters together. Like the characters from the, the Fox um, – <laughs> the 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 franchise from you know x-men and fantastic four and i like that he was adamantly working hard on bringing spider-man to the into the mcu like he like they had complete ownership of spider-man and i think it was amy pascal who was the the sony executive that kept turning kevin foggy down at every at, at at every point he tried to offer a deal and i think there's still still some dispute between the between both parties because they're not even allowed to use venom or green goblin or, or some of the most uh, notable antagonists from the spider-man franchise and it's just it's bizarre but i like the way he's approaching so he's seeing it as a fan and he wants these characters in his shared universe as much as we do. I love that about him. He's a nerd. Anyways, moving on to Evan Peters. Actually, before I talk about Evan Peters, let me get into some theories that I found off of Reddit for the MCU and how the X-Men are going to be introduced. But before I talk about that, I want to mention to you all that there's a lot of background noise going on. And I'm sure all of you, most of you have heard it by now already. And... <laughs> I, I'm not going to apologize, but I, I just, I want you to all know that I'm aware of it, but I hope it's not distracting. And if it is, I apologize. <laughs> okay, um, so let's get into some of the theories that I found off of Reddit. Um, now, there uh, there's a lot of different approaches to as to how Marvel Studios can introduce the X-Men, and there's different ones, and I have like a whole list. So let's get into it. They can be created by Wanda, similar to how it was uh, formulated in the House of M storyline in the comics, which I'm not too familiar with. I actually haven't read as much Marvel comics as I would have liked to have. That didn't make sense. Snap Theory. Um, the Snap has unlocked the X-Gene like the Mind Stone did for Wanda. Yeah, I guess... That could make sense because the Mind Stone, they, they demonstrated throughout the, the entire series, especially in this last episode, that the Mind Stone had enhanced her powers, but that they also revealed that she had it all along. So that could definitely work for the future, but I, I have better theories as to how it might work. So let me, let me get into those. Uh, multiverse theory. They will come from the multiverse, and this is actually... This actually makes the most sense to me as to how they would do it. Um, but before I talk more about this one, which is actually my favorite, let me get into Hex Theory. Uh, the people in the Hex will become mutants. Okay, the witch, Agatha the Witch, in this last episode mentioned that there is transmutation going on. Like, oh shit, Wanda, girl, <laughs> you have, you're, you forged this out of your mind, through your own imagination, I don't know how you're projecting this, but in the outer rims and the outskirts of, of your of your entire society, entire of your entire community that you've created by yourself, you're subconsciously making these people think that they're a part of your world. Or people are still doing jobs and you're not controlling them directly. Isn't it? And it's so crazy. But for this one, the people in the hex will become mutants. I don't know. 
I know that when she was when she was referring to transmutation, she I think she was specifically referring to Monica Rambeau. So in that moment, she was like, "Oh my God, it, it was a new revelation." So she was referring to the fact that that that, that Monica Rambeau had demonstrated her powers in front of the both of them. So I think she was mildly impressed by that. But there were so many things, so many other features to her powers that have yet to be explained. And, and in that episode, she's delving deep into it. Always there. This is the last theory. They, they were always there. They were always here. And they just haven't told anybody. So they've been oppressed by their own society. It just doesn't make sense. It's too convenient. It, that storyline would not fit anywhere. I mean, I think there would have been some evidence of, of them being a, a part of society somewhere. And I think in the span of 18 to 22 movies, 22 movies in total, there should have been some kind of reference to them. And even in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and the other series that they've released, like Inhumans and, and Agent Carter, like there, there should have been some kind of hint towards the existence of, of x-men but there wasn't and so i mean if, if it's a type of show that delves into conspiracy theories but they never get into it and it, it the theory of them being all there the whole time it doesn't fit but here's the other thing because marvel studios would make a huge profit off of introducing more spider-men like Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and having them in different universes and, and bringing them in for one movie. And, and that's like, okay, so you're not like as the executive for Marvel Studios, you're not just thinking about it as like, oh, like what makes for the better story? You, you don't No, you're thinking about it in terms of what could make the most sales. So the fact that, you know, they're bringing in Tobey Maguire and then they can potentially make a new action figure out of him, that sells. Like, that's hitting directly into people's nostalgia because of the fact that the Raimi movies were a, a hit, a sensation. You're like, and the fact that they haven't released new upgraded toys, or <laughs> I hate to describe them as that, new upgraded action figures that, that, that are up to today's standards for those figures, and, and the fact that this could be a, a really big opportunity for them to make millions off of that idea, this is, it's, it's, it's huge in itself, in and of itself. So bringing those in for a Spider-Man movie is huge. And now the fact that X-Men, this is, this is the way they're thinking about it. And this is, I'm, I'm just stepping into the mind of Kevin Foggy, And I, I'm like obsessed with him, okay? I'm not in love with him. I just really like him as a figure, all right? Don't, don't make any assumptions. Kevin Feige, he's looking at the X-Men and he's saying, all right, what do we do here? Now, the fact that they've already introduced Evan Peters shows that Wanda could be pulling different figures from different multiverses. She has the power of, do of doing that because she could be what's known as a Nexus figure. And a Nexus figure is like, you're, you're the same, as it's explained by Redditors, you're the same throughout multiple universes. Like, there's like there's no different variations of, of what you are as a person. You're just, like, you're, you're, you're literally the same figure. Now, you know, this, it, this wouldn't be true for someone like Tony Stark. If... He's a genius in one world, he could be a total idiot in the other, right? Like, he could just be a playboy philanthropist in a, in a totally separate universe. Um, but Wanda is the exact same. So that's th that's the uh, the concept of, of what a Nexus person is. Now, let me explain. So, um, I'm thinking that Kevin Feige 
needs as much familiar much familiarity as he could get so the apocalypse like the latest x-men movies that came that have come out in recent years the fact that they haven't been making as much money uh as you know the older x-men movies is is a bit of a bummer but he knows that those those cat that cast of people is a is pretty likable and he if he brings them in he could be able to he he's able to pull it off he's looking at this and he's saying well if we recast them then people wouldn't be as interested in it but if we can bring those actors in and rework their chemistry then i think that would be better for the direction of marvel studios and and the, they've already proven to do so so that's that's my take on it i i think they're they're definitely going to stick to a multiverse <laughs> all right moving on okay let's talk about evan peters i mentioned on twitter that the way they introduced him was perfect like they took liberties with that and i there's another guy that's a really popular film critic he's around my age and his name is high top i've mentioned him on the podcast before but uh he said that it totally dismissed the tension the way that they brought him in in that in the last scene of that particular episode, diffused the tension of Wanda and Vision, but it really didn't. I, I don't like. There are some people that have a problem with it, but they their their comments are just needlessly contrarian, in my opinion. But the episode that took place after that, in for that one, they were mimicking the '90s, but in the next episode. They were mimicking like the sitcoms from uh, from the early two thousands, like Malcolm in the Middle and and other ones. But I think that's the only show that they were basing that style of directing and style of filmmaking on, of for that one. But yeah, it was it was considered the Halloween episode, and and Evan Peters could easily be a stand-in for one of the brothers in Al- Malcolm in the Middle, and I I just think he's able to play off that role so perfectly. And it's almost weird because he was he wasn't involved in any projects like it uh, prior to coming to Marvel Studios. I mean, he was exclusively working on stuff like American Horror Story and. And he actually did a phenomenal job with those roles, with the roles that he was given. But yeah, um, I I liked I liked him, and they they're still not clear as to how he was brought in. But I, I think they're probably going to get into that uh, by the end of the season. So let me see um show so far it's pretty good i i love the guessing game i i've talked about it so many times and i i love talking about it with people it's fun to speculate and just to see what what other theories people are coming up with but uh, i hate how like the show feels the need to hold your hand it has that kind of dialogue and it's it's always bound to get really annoying um so for an example is uh, that conversation between Vision and Darcy, they're driving on the way over to Wanda's house and they're constantly interrupted and they're talking about uh, the past. And this is another complaint that I have, but the, the, it, I guess it also plays into the thing that I'm talking about. So uh, Darcy mentioned, 
Hey, you died in front of your wife. That happened in Infinity War. Remember that? <laughs> it was so funny. Haha, <laughs> I made a funny. And I guess it's like, okay, you're just gonna... You're, you're not really gonna, gonna talk about that. You're not really going to examine how Vision is feeling at that moment. He's like, oh, my wife had to die. I mean, <laughs> what? Okay. My wife had to watch me die, and she was there, and and she she must have suffered, and this is what led her to create this world, and, and I need to find, I need to get to her right away. I need to be there for her, but they just wrote it off as a joke, and it wasn't funny. It, it, I mean, it, it felt weird. The Agnes reveal, I think it was expected. Everybody expected it. There's this really popular YouTube channel called Screen Crush, and they... They, there's so much editing that goes into their videos, but they release like all the Easter egg. They release videos of of the Easter Easter eggs in each of the episodes, and they it shows like seventy or eighty, and it could last up to like fifteen or twenty five minutes. But there's so literally so much editing that goes into it. Like they watch it, and then they just like go straight to working on it, or they like they they have to watch it at least three times to pick up on the Easter eggs and then they, they go over it. It's, it's so cool. Um, and that's how, I mean, I think they, they enable podcasters and the showrunners. I keep getting those two mixed up, but they enable guys like us to go and talk about it on these platforms and, and review it. Paul Bettany recently came out with a, uh, statement about as to who is going to be the next big, uh, reveal um so evan peters technically wasn't the big reveal uh with the with the latest episodes that came out so let me find that quote so the actor mentioned that there is one character that has not been revealed yet bettany stated that it is very exciting for him he asserted that it is an actor he has longed to work with all of his life he noted that they have some amazing scenes together and he thinks the chemistry between him is extraordinary and fireworks in quotation marks on set. So this is according to republicworld.com, but I'm pretty sure they have this uh, quote featured in other articles that are out there. Some, pe some people are speculating that it's Ian McKellen as, uh, what's that guy's name, as Magneto, but... I don't think it is because Ian McKellen is getting way too old. And if you bring him in as Magneto, I think people are going to be expecting more appearances from him. So if anything, if they are going to introduce Magneto into the Marvel Studios universe, then it definitely has to be the, the younger guy that plays him. And I can't recall his name right now, but I don't think it's Magneto it's he says it's somebody that he's been longing to work with all of his life i think it has to be probably al pacino i think there's there's a lot of speculation that it is him and paul bettany all of his life like this guy is how old 49 i this is, is something that i recently looked up on google he's 49 years old and the only other dude that i can probably think of that is that probably might be willing to but then now that i'm thinking about it it doesn't make any sense either only because of his ties with martin scorsese and the fact that martin scorsese has come out numerous times to denounce marvel studios and 
and dismissing their movies as roller coaster rides and not actual film. So I I don't think Al Pacino would take on a role only because he has respect for Martin Scorsese. So it's kind of weird to think about who would actually come on and play a, a, like a, a villain role or something along those lines. I don't know. Well, and the fact that they could be like 80 years old. It just doesn't make any sense. Because if they're 80, then you have to you have to be conscious about their health. I think that's all the news that I wanted to cover. So let me get in to Wanda's character development. All right, everybody, let's get into some uh, WandaVision. Let's talk about Wanda, Agatha, and uh, the low points and midpoints of the story so far. Um, before I talk about anything else, let me just say that the story isn't done yet. We still have the climax, uh, this last episode that's coming out uh, Friday, and and the next episode for RAS won't even come out until, let's see, it's, sun, it's Monday right now. The episode should have been released yesterday. Uh, the next episode won't be out until the 14th of March, and so... Uh, by then, I think I'll have time. I, I'll have. I, I will have had enough time to reflect on everything that happened throughout the show, um, the the whole like the entire arc as it is. And I think this is the reason why I want to review shows altogether, not just episode by episode. But still, this is Marvel Studios, and I like it. So, um, but just letting you all know, it's going to happen less often. Um, the character, so the arc will be realized, fully realized by the end of the season, uh, but I have a good idea as to what it might be. Um, let's talk about the low point and the midpoint of the shows. So I think I'm going to give you some tools as to uh, like how you can identify certain plot points and story beats in an entire show or even a movie, but I like that. Shows like definitely give more time for character development. You have more moments with them. And people were even suggesting for The Mandalorian, like, oh, hey, dude, he should have his own movie. But, I mean, other people would look at that and go, no, he shouldn't. Because, one, you already have a lot of um, special effects. You already have a really high budget for those for those shows. And, two, you you have less time for the characters so why would you ever want to put it into condense it into an hour and 20 minutes or two hours it just doesn't make any sense so yeah um low points and and midpoints um so let's talk about the midpoint uh according to blake snyder's cheat sheet story beat story story beat cheat sheet um he describes the midpoint as the largest plot twist of the film it raises the stakes for the main character's goals can change the goal completely or at least makes the requirements of the goal much more difficult it can feel like a new movie is starting as a result of the midpoint here the main character must recommit to the new goal for which there is no turning back often it is the b story that incites the midpoint plot twist often ticking time clock for resolving the goal begins ticking at the midpoint um 
So disregard those last two statements and focus on recommitting to a new goal. The first goal at the very beginning of the, of the story of WandaVision is her sole devotion to Vision. She's like she's focused on reestablishing and rekindling the love that she has for him. And she's deliberately rejecting the fact that she this vision is a creation of her own. This is not the real vision. Like it's it's such a fragile reality that she's living in. And I feel like that speaks truths to so many people because they have fragile realities of what their world is or and they're living in the illusion that the world that they're living in is their world, but it's not. It's really it, like if you think deeper into it, there's so many existential truths in movies and shows like WandaVision. And I think that's the power of filmmaking. But let's continue. So we at the midpoint, she's no longer just solely devoted to vision. I think she's she's willing to move forward and she has they both make the decision to have the kids and they and the kids uh, in episode five in, in particular, the kids are growing up at a rapid pace. So they're already 10 years old by this point in the story. And they're requiring a lot of her attention throughout the episode. And then by the end of it, her cousin, her not her cousin, her brother comes in. And he's also like a, a, an additional element to the family dynamic. And he's changing it. It's it's she's recommitting herself to them, like the new loves of her life. And and vision, I think at this point, especially in episode six, I believe he's not, I think he's disengaged and, and more, and he's trying to figure out the truth of what this all is and what it all means and, and how they got to this point and how, what he is. I mean, he's trying to answer those existential questions for himself. So it's, it's really interesting. So they, she switches her goals. And at the same time, the villains, the villain like Agatha, there's, there's also that that possibility of an additional villain coming in, which I'll explain a little bit in a little bit. Um, the other forces are closing in, like the the guys at Sword around the perimeter of the hex. They're saying like they're coming up with new concepts and ideas of how to 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 breach uh, the perimeter, and they they manage to do so. At least one faction of of them decides to, and then they. In, in the reveal, in the end credit scene of this last episode that has come out, they have vision. They have a new vision. They have their own vision. This is the, the original body. Um, and they've revitalized him. So the forces are growing stronger and they're coming in, but especially the villain Agatha, but she's not the sole villain. So let me, let me read you what I found off of Reddit. So this Redditor states, and this is not a popular Reddit theory, but this is a good idea to have at the back of your mind in this episode that's coming up next. Agatha is not 100% bad. So this guy states, I thought it was weird that Agatha fled the final flashback scene to stand in the street with the kids all of a sudden, allowing Wanda to escape the trap that she was in. Perhaps Agatha realized another magical being in the hex all along. This guy, he can't grammar. He can't grammar. What's wrong with this dude? Okay. Um, realized another magical being was in the hex all along, and she hadn't realized because she was so focused on Wanda. Her grabbing the kids would be more to draw out the real villain 
hold them hostage because she realized the kids were in the were the end game for this villain. This would probably be Dottie. Yeah. There's a lot of hints about Dottie being the villain or Mephisto. Like there there were like subtle hints in that episode that she was featured in. Like the devil is in the details or she's she's actually the devil um as Agatha described her, but it's a little weird because that scene in that context where she's holding those kids by the neck, she's holding them for her own safety because she realizes how how powerful Wanda is. And, I, and she was afraid of the fact that Wanda could have realized how powerful she was uh, during those visits to her past. So, yeah, I think it was just more of a safety measure on Agatha's part, but I also believe that this person could, has a valid point with uh, with the fact that there is another antagonistic force out there, and I think there is. I think it, because it's just like this confrontation between Wanda and Agatha. If we examine it closely, it's not it's it it doesn't really go anywhere. You know where where does it go? And unless there's like something much more evil and malevolent coming in, and I think it's going to be interesting because all of these forces are, are finally going to clash. And I think Kevin Feige or somebody else from Marvel Studios explained that this clash is supposed to be um, at the endgame level. This is like an Avengers level incident where forces are going to meet. So I'm not, I shouldn't comment on Wanda's arc. Um... So we, we just got past the all is lost point where the boys are missing. Wanda is completely vulnerable. Monica is sabotaged by Evan Peters. Vision is clueless on their on their whereabouts. We just passed that. And now we're at the tipping point of the climax. Yeah. So for the sake of time, I'm going to be saving Wanda's entire arc the review of it, the analysis, and everything for the next episode of RIS, um, because the last episode of WandaVision hasn't released yet. So, let's move on to the next topic. Okay, everybody. So, this is the political section of this episode. I'm going to be reviewing Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, as well as cover a bit of my thoughts on the trial of the Chicago 7, some articles that responded to some of the film's lesser qualities, as they put it, and, of course, uh, the climate crisis. But just a quick comment on that, because I think that was the intention from the beginning. Now, let's go ahead and start with Judas and the Black Messiah. So my general thoughts for this film are you should check it out right away, and... It has really Oscar-worthy performances from uh, Daniel Kaluuya, who played uh, the main character from Get Out and uh, the other main character from Queen and Slim. And then we have Lakeith Stanfield. You, re you may remember him from the live-action adaptation of the Death Note animated anime series. Uh, he also starred in Get Out. I don't know if he's from any other notable role uh, he is a famous actor he did star in atlanta the photograph yeah uh, they're both famous actors and they do they both did an incredible job so i highly recommend it to you it is um out of 10 
out of 10, I'd probably rate it a good solid 9? No, I mean for, okay, so 9 objectively, but for personally, I didn't, it's not my favorite, so how do you, how do you factor that into a score? You just kind of have to talk about what you felt and I think that's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to talk about, those are just my general thoughts. I Everybody should see it. But I'm going to review and go over, uh, I guess those two things mean the same thing. I'm going to review some uh, moments that stood out to me the most. So here we go. Let's see. Um, I like the messages throughout the film. Uh, I liked how they did the characterization for Fred Hampton, the main character. He, of course, was the Black Messiah, and he was the unwavering protagonist. He's the one that truly didn't have an arc, the one that doesn't fundamentally change as a person and who he is. Uh, but, of course, Billy O'Neill's character... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm getting him mixed up with Bobby Seal. Billy O'Neill is the guy uh, that was Judas. He's the rat. He's the guy that was the FBI informant all along. He doesn't. He has an arc, but I'll kind of get to uh, everything regarding that, and probably later on during this review, even though it's technically not a review. But I, there's okay, everybody. So here, check it out. There's a really powerful scene with him. They, they. There's all these moments throughout the film that show us who he is as a person, but I liked that they showed him as a figure against the idea of divide and conquer, which is what the United States was clearly doing in the 60s and, and, and you know, has been n notorious for doing throughout history. But let me just kind of give you the dialogue and, and show you this one scene in particular that really highlights that. So, you know, all right, so... In this scene, the Black Panthers are actually approaching uh, white Southerners and they have the Confederate flag right behind the speaker and he's at the podium and he's talking about how proud they're, they're all sharing how proud they are of their white heritage. And then, of course, that's already making you vomit. <laughs> I, and I get that, but he comes in and then... Um, the one one of the actors, one of the, the the members of the Black Panther Party, he looks at the flag and he goes, "You see a flag, but I see one of my ancestors hanging from a tree," and and then of course there there a, a dispute erupts and the guy f sitting in the audience he looks at him and he, he says, "Don't fucking talk to us like that." But this is so I'm gonna I'm, I actually went back saw the scene, wrote down exactly what they said and I'm gonna read it out loud to you. So the speaker, he says. Look, we oppressed your people for a long time. He says this to the Black Panther Party. And then the white guy in the audience, as I was mentioning before, he says, we didn't oppress shit. My family was filled with sharecroppers. And then the party member, he says, a.k.a. the overseer. But then Hampton steps in and he says something very interesting. And he goes, what if the overseer had banded with the slaves to cut the master's throat? So this was a moment of unifying uh, all of them together. And then he continues, he says, he he makes, like he uses his wit in that moment and he he brings up the same struggle that both of their, both of their people are facing. And he, and he mentions, you all are probably paying for the same bullshit education for your kids and getting beaten by the cops, but he calls them pigs. And it's the way he delivers it. And if you actually look at interviews with Fred Hampton, 
Daniel Kaluuya does a pretty spot-on job. Um, yeah, so I did I did a little bit of research, and I, I happened to go back and and write the scene uh, verbatim onto the page. But let's continue. So you have to understand, everybody, in film, there's two different types of protagonists. One that comes in and chases, changes everything, and nothing fundamentally changes about them, or the person... Uh, in question, the post, the person that the audience is focusing on fundamentally changes because of the events and because of uh, what environment that he's in. And then in this case, it's both, uh, as I just described to you earlier. And now, you can sh- like you can show that at the beginning, Daniel Kaluuya's character, Fred Hampton, he's not reaching as much people as he hopes for. And so in the beginning, he has a speech about how uh, cap- capitalism should be rebuked and and how it's a pr- it's it's a system of oppression but nobody's really buying into it and he's saying that there's a lot of there's that word uh, token activism performative activism going on with uh, the US recognizing and changing the names of institutions and allowing to celebrate cultural heritage but he's saying that's not enough like this is like we don't need this is this isn't good enough for our people, then we need to break this system down as a whole. We need socialism that would actually do justice for our people. And no, and nobody's buying into it at first. But then he goes out and he and he's visiting these different groups. He's visiting Italians. He's visiting white Southerners. And he's saying, look, you guys, everybody here, we're all facing the same struggle. So let's band together. And then in scenes, right before he's arrested for stealing ice cream, you could see that they're banding together and they're actually reaching out to large crowds. And then as soon as he's released from prison, he's 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 having a much bigger impact than he had originally at the beginning of the film. So I was really impressed with the characterization and how they they showed this man to be remarkable at, at just 21 years old. But Daniel Kaluuya, I think he's almost 30. So it's um, that was a little distracting when I... I <laughs> especially thinking about it now but doing all of that setting up daycare and and being a stoic in prison and being being able to recite speeches that's in his head while he was in prison no access to books no access to to any any kind of interaction it's it shows how remarkable he was for his time and for his age so i really appreciated that the film um had Daniel Kaluuya portray him as such and and be able to represent him accurately. And now I can't say that uh, with full sincerity because I, I've, I've never looked into any biographies that discuss Fred Hampton's history, but I'm guessing if they were motivated to make this film, had Fred Hampton was that type of leader. So um, yeah, I was really impressed with him as a person and seeing him. And now I want to get into the antagonists of the film because this is something interesting. And I want to specifically mention the guy, uh, Roy Mitchell, who was paying Billy O'Neill to sabotage the Black, Black Panther Party and who ultimately laid out the blueprint that would lead to Fred Hampton's death. I think this casting was intentional because the guy who played him, his name is... Jesse Plemons and Jesse Plemons was in I think it was not Breaking yeah no Breaking Bad he was in Breaking Bad and he was in this latest film that came out uh, called El Camino and Jesse Plemons 
he's he was the guy that held Jesse Pinkman captive. So he was human trafficking in the movie, and he had this like really nice and soft demeanor. He was even like, "Hey Jesse, look, man, I'm, I'm I may be your captor, but I'm super nice to you. And I'm I, if you be nice to me, then I'm going to reward you with some pizza. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours." And he's he's a puppet for a much larger system of oppression. And but he does it in such a, a a seemingly friendly way that you that the audience is almost sympathizing with him. And then there's moments where uh, throughout the film where, especially in the beginning of the first half, where we want to sympathize with him. I mean, it's just a guy that has a family. Even Billy O'Neill, Billy O'Neill is invited to his house, and they're they're sitting together, and they're having dinner, and they're and he's treating him so nicely, and he's being introduced to his kids. But he's ultimately using Billy as a tool, and it's it's so heartbreaking. And especially knowing what happens to Billy at the end of the film, and and finding out about his grim fate. That was that was a lot. So. But this casting, I think because of the fact that the director knew this guy had played a role similar to Roy Mitchell, he just decided to bring him in because the audience, I mean, the the general audience, audiences had already associated that with that actor. I, That's my speculation as a viewer. And that's all I'll really say. Um... Listen, okay, so now I'm going to get into some real talk about Billy O'Neill's arc. I didn't mention spoilers in the beginning, and I probably should have, so that was my bad. I go in-depth into these things. Let's talk about Billy O'Neill, because this is... Billy, he has a character arc, okay? He has a, he has a, a new sense of purpose by the end of the film but he he chooses not to act on it he he knows that the black panther party is justified in every is justified in their motives and they're actually trying to do things that will benefit the community and he's no longer convinced by the comparison Roy Mitchell makes between the black panther party and the KKK so he's he's done with that illusion and and he's and he's and he fully believes in in the rhetoric and and the mission of the Black Panther Party. But then he he does things in his own self interest, like he would have done at the beginning of the film, and he ultimately undermines Fred Hamp the Fred Hampton's safety by giving th- this information to the FBI, and so they murder him. But you could see the the change of heart in his eyes, even though his actions had spoke different. By the end, when he gets the keys to the gas station and a few hundred dollars. And so there is a change of mind, ultimately, which which is the arc in itself, in and of itself. But there's no change of action until, until you, you go into the, you go into the credit scene. And then you see what the fate was for each individual that was involved in the shooting of Fred, of Fred Hampton's premises. And Billy O'Neill himself, they they show him, they show us the interview that PBS had done with him in 1989, and you see that he that he ended up that he ultimately committed suicide. It's that that was his arc, 
He decided to take action. He couldn't live with what he had done. But once again, I do recommend that you check it out as soon as possible. There's a lot of people coming out saying that there were a lot of conveniences, cliches, and, um, well, what you would normally expect from a movie, which I guess would be a cliche. I guess the response that I have for it is they can't tell a completely accurate retelling of every single thing because they do have to fit a structural narrative and they do want this to be shared with as many people as they possibly could, can. The same goes for this other movie that recently came out called The Tr Trial of the Chicago 7. And it uh, was released in November. It was directed and written by uh, the highly respected filmmaker Aaron Sorkin. And you may be familiar with some of his work because he did uh, The Social Network with Jesse Eisenberg and Molly's Game with Jessica Chastain. Um, and so in an article by Slate.com, it states... Uh, in Adam Naiman's review for The Ringer, he accused Sorkin of mobilizing black suffering to trouble the consciences, conscious, consciences of white characters after replacing his tragic defiant African-American character on display so that we can shake our heads at his treatment. The director is free to return to the serial comic bickering between movie stars that is his specialty. Yeah, if you can hear my dogs barking in the background, uh, I will try and, and uh, suppress that noise as much as I can uh, by putting my mouth right next to the microphone. Uh, okay, so what is it, this? He's referring to the scene where Bobby Seale is uh, gagged by Judge Hoffman. I know I didn't give any spoiler warnings. Uh I, I'm just going to put it in the description and then I hope you all are um, able to heed my warning. Is it heed or heave? I don't know. Um, yeah, so they gagged him for about two minutes until they until the judge declared a mistrial. But in real life, uh, they actually gagged him for a, a few days as opposed to a couple minutes. So um, he, he sort of... I guess this this person on the web was accusing Sorkin of uh, underplaying uh, the severity of the judge's actions, but I don't think he was. And like I said, with uh, Billy O'Neill in, uh, as not Billy O'Neill particularly, but with the events of Judas and the Black Messiah, they have to do uh, a restructuring to fit uh, a proper movie narrative okay it has to fit uh, the three-act structure i mean of course there's got to be a midpoint there's got to be a low point it has to be it, these things have to appeal to audiences but i get it uh he shouldn't have underplayed that i think it it was a little wrong um and i can understand it but at the same time it's i think you're I think that's that's a pretty heavy accusation of just of the director merely glossing over those events. I mean, it's it it's it's okay to suggest that, but I think it's what he was intending to do because the seven main actors were all white, and this was a story that, and this was a, a telling of their story, and not so much 
Fred Hampton and Bobby Seale, but I think he paid their proper respect. But um, I really liked all the performances for this one. I love trial movies. I love movies um, like, oh, what's that one? 12 Angry Men. I love uh, the To Kill a Mockingbird with Atticus Finch. Uh, There's some standout amazing scenes in that film. And, uh, oh God, I can't think of any other trial movies, but yeah, I, it's, you can, I think even Aaron, Aaron Sorkin even stated in an interview and the dynamic between authority and those that are fight, fighting for truth and justice, like it's, it's always interesting to, to see how those play out and how a judge can be uh, unjust. So please uh, check it out. And yeah, moving on to our last segment, the climate crisis. Dun dun dun. <laughs> okay, uh, but before that, I am gonna take a quick break. So I'll be RB. Three, two, and one. Remember when I did that every time I went on break? It's probably in the first few episodes that I released. But we're down to eight, and. We are also down to our last topic for this episode. And then, uh, of course, uh, before I say anything else, I promise uh, things have just been so busy lately. But I will work as hard as I can to get this next episode uh, out uh, on the 14th of March as it is scheduled. Okay, so it is currently in the works. This one is late. Eight is late. I think that's probably going to be the title of this upcoming, this episode. But, uh, yeah. Let's get down to the climate crisis. Something uh, more foreboding. Ooh, that's a big word. Um, I was reading this article the other day. It was by NPR. And I don't know who the author is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it out to all of you. Because I think it's important. This is the safety of our planet, and this is a crisis that we're that we're currently dealing with. So the Biden administration is folk. I keep like not enunciating my words the right way. I get off track too. Let's continue. The Biden administration is focusing on executive actions, like banning new oil and gas leases on federal lands and revoking permits for the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have carried carbon-intensive oil from Canada. So I, I think this administration, through executive orders, is hell-bent on reducing greenhouse gases. Um, but this article is suggesting that it may not be enough. Uh, so these... Trump-era executive actions that came right before Biden were implemented, so it's going to take a while to undo every single um, one of his policies. But not only that, um, he needs Biden, if we're thinking about uh, long-term regulation, then it needs to uh, be done through an, a democratic process, and that would be through uh, Congress, of course. And now that we have a majority in both houses, we might be able to do so, but it requires um, swift action on everybody's part to get this through. Now, why am I mentioning this? Why am I talking about it? Because this is the fate of our entire world, and it's not bound to get any better. Like, we're on a trajectory of getting a lot worse. I was reading this article, this other one, that said, 
Um, I may not be able to pull it up for you right now, but 2020 is not uh, the worst, and the worst has yet to come. Um, so I was reading this other article by CFR.org. I don't even know what that stands for, but it says, uh, it answers the question directly of, is climate change driving the U.S. wildfire crisis? And it says, climate change creates conditions that favor wildfires, hotter temperatures, deeper droughts, and drier vegetation. As the planet warms, fires start earlier in the year, last longer, and get bigger. Climate change is to blame for more than half of the increase in areas vulnerable to fire since 1984. And I don't know why there's still so much in dispute. But when when we're approaching conservatives like Ben Shapiro and Michael Knowles, they suggest that most of the rhetoric of climate change and wildfires is controlled by the left by the left what does that even mean it, it is is the left not on the side of science shouldn't we all be on the side of science it's, it's not a left or right issue those guys are fucking idiots and instead they choose to argue and bicker and and feel resentment towards the left over gender pronouns it's fucking insane it's so stupid and ridiculous the i i have I have almost no respect for those people. And I and I can understand and empathize with others that don't as well. But at the same time, they're the idiots that are, are helping to cause a rift in society. And so there needs to be outreach with them. There needs to be compromise. But still, it's it's over half of the country that we're dealing with. So we need to be able to come together and and just have a discourse. That's my personal belief on it. But I wanted to read uh, both of those uh, article statements for a few reasons. It's bound to get worse, like I mentioned. And we all need to be grateful for the time we have left. Um, The changes we need to implement are too tremendous for us to overcome. And the conditions will rapidly become worse and worse. So wildfires are bound to get a lot uglier like I've I've this is the first time I last year was the first time in my life where I had actually witnessed a, a fire continuously go on for about a week and I, I could only imagine what people are suffering through in Northern California especially the most vulnerable the most um, the people have lost their homes and I, it's something that we all need to keep in mind like the grim fate of our world is something that we should be constantly thinking about and not um and we shouldn't get distracted by what's on our cell phones like how how long is it going to take where we finally look up from our cell phones and realize like this is this is bad this is bad we like people are suffering all throughout like migration caravans that we've previously covered on the show are coming here for a reason for because of environmental disasters and we just need to we need to wake up and realize that our mortality is limited i didn't mean to be so somber with you all but thank you for listening and i hope you'll join us for ras number nine no ideas for it yet but it's it will come out as uh it is supposed to be scheduled for um 
March March 14th, like I said. This was a fun episode, and I had a great time talking with you. And let me know your thoughts. You can send me an email. You can DM me through Instagram. You can DM me through Twitter. I would love to have conversations with you all about uh, these issues and uh, the movies that I've discussed. And I am uh, pretty pretty open to, uh, to hearing uh, different people's opinions. So once again, thank you, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.